0: And g'day, here it is, the Fuzzy Logic Science Show on Two X. Thank you, Pat, for Irish voice this morning. And today we're going to be talking about an infinite resource. That is a resource that you can pump out of for as long as you want, and you can pump your rubbish into for as long as you want. And there is no end to that. We are, of course, are talking about the world's oceans. And that is going to be the theme of our program today here on Fuzzy Logic. We'll get into the detail of that in a little while, but we have our special guest who will be taking us through that journey, but first a couple of This Day in Science items. My name is Rod and joining me on the console here is Richard. G'day Richard and Tom. Tom, in fact the next voice you'll hear is Tom.
1: Good morning everybody.
0: (laughs) Uh, Tom, we we do have some significant This Day in Science Uh, Today is the birth date of Theodore Maiman, who was born on the 11th of July, 1927, and he was the physicist who built the first working laser, and began working with electronic devices in his teens, and he had earned his college money by repairing electrical appliances and radios, and you think about what the laser now has done, uh, it's been a very significant device, but when he built it, they didn't know what very cool thing. What are we going to do with this? Uh, Laser. Funky, hey? All right. A trinket. A trinket. Well, uh, video discs, ranging devices, surgery, you name it. And all from this guy
1: born in 1927, Theodore Maiman. Also on this day, uh, in 1909, the very first SOS radio distress call went out. Uh, Its wireless operator, T.D. Haubner, radioed for help after a propeller shaft snapped while off the coast at Cape Hatteras. The call was heard by the United Wireless Station, HA, at Hatteras, and a few months months later, Haubner on the SS, I can't even pronounce that, Arafo, uh, received an SOS from the SS Iroquois, the second use of SOS in America.
0: And that's the old dot 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 dash 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 dot 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 is it not the SOS signal? Uh, it's becoming an com- increasingly rare uh, uh, communication device. I think these days we send SMSs and use the mobile phones, sat phones, you name it. But the old Morse code is only used by a few hardcore old-timers with their valve radios and, <laughs> and other such old technology.
1: You'll hear a few people with their mobile phones. They get an, S- an SOS SMS tone, which is a little bit alarming. Uh, ah, yes. Yeah, now... Here's another one. Now, who,
0: who Tom, was the person who, uh, trick question, who invented the electric light?
1: Uh, That would have to be Thomas Edison, surely.
0: That's the the common answer, but apparently it's not, because on this day in 1892, the U.S. patent office issued a patent to Joseph Swan in England, not Thomas Edison, and he was the inventor of the electric light carbon for an incandescent lamp.
1: All right, there you go. 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 Tricks of history.
0: And and he set up a company to produce the first practical filament lamp. So not Edison, a good bit of, uh, uh, what do you call it, U.S. patriotic... uh, Patent thievery. uh, (laughs) Yes. Actually, Edison was an interesting character because he and Westinghouse had, uh, had a really big battle, AC current versus DC current. But we might cover that another day here on Fuzzy Logic.
1: And we've also got the first instant coffee patent, haven't we? we Perhaps a less impressive contribution to society and science, but uh, it had to be done. In 1903, the first U.S. patent for instant coffee was issued. And it was entitled, Coffee Concentrate and Process of Making Same, which is a wonderfully timely name for instant coffee. Uh, the application was filed on 17th of April 1901, uh, in which year the Cato Coffee Company introduced the product at the Pan American Exposition in Buffalo. So, instant coffee on this day in 1903. All those breakfast starters, very, very grateful for that invention. 110 years, and well, I suppose it's, they've, they've made some recent good-tasting instant coffees, but it's, it's been in development for a long time.
0: Yeah, now, in the news in the last few weeks has been this really interesting story about a new kind of virus. And this story is, is quite fundamental because it challenges the classification that we use for forms of life on Earth. And this is uh, the largest known virus ever found on the Earth. And in fact, it comes from a pond at La Trobe University of all places but I think there's another site where they have it and my friend sent me this story because he walks past this pond every morning but the French researchers found this virus and it indicates huge discoveries remain to be made in, at the fundamental level but it's unlike anything we've seen before because it's an entirely new family it's really big and apparently with most viruses you need a special microscope like electron scanning microscope to see but you can see this one with a really good conventional light microscope and it has 1.9 million DNA base pairs in it about 1500 genes so this thing is huge does it do
1: anything impressive? I mean the name virus conjures up very negative images usually Uh, Does this one do anything that we know about yet?
0: Well, it it, it lives on the amoeba in the pond water. So it it goes inside the amoeba and it harnesses the, takes over the amoeba structure and then it it pops the thing open and more viruses spray out and then... All right. And so on to other amoeba. But so, is it interesting? Here we are in 2013 and there is something as fundamental as this still to be discovered. It mm. just goes to show how big the world is, how big
1: it is. <laughs> <The> giant viruses <laughs> remaining undiscovered, 2013.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's it's, it's amazing. So he suggests uh, the classical tree of life might not, this is Professor Clavier, the French professor who's been researching this, that the classical tree of life might en- encompass the entire story. Yeah, so now we've got some Frankenburger.
1: This was a big story. It made the mainstream media, so maybe you've all heard about it already, but it's an exciting story. It really captured my imagination. This week, they successfully, on live TV, prepared and ate a patty, a burger patty made from synthesized meat. It cost £250,000 to develop, making it possibly one of the most expensive meals ever produced. And uh, the results were okay. They said it tasted sort of like meat, but it was a little bit dry. And uh, there's still a ways to go before it becomes a viable alternative to, say, steak. Uh, but it's a very impressive first step. And the is behind it, uh, hope that maybe in 10 to 20 years they'll have a marketable product, possibly including do-it-yourself-at-home kits so you can grow your own meat <laughs> in your home laboratory. It's a bit like a 3D printing, really. Well, yeah. I mean, maybe we'll be printing meat before we know it. It's, it's <laughs> amazing.
0: Now, now the, the, the fundamental question that comes to mind uh, when we're talking about this sort of thing is, does this scale to production? So you can do it in a lab, but is it enough to grow food on an industrial
1: scale that we need to feed the population? At this point, with a £250,000 price tag, I think we can safely say, no, it's not. But it, as with any invention, the first one, there's heavy research. So uh, looking at it from an economics point of view, each one we produce from this point will approximately half its cost because the research has already been done. So now we're just paying for the materials and the electricity and whatever else is required in the production. But the marginal cost of producing each unit will go down to the point where possibly it will be industrially viable.
0: So we can use industrial production technologies and economies of scale and so on, which which is what you're referring to. But the analogy that comes to mind are things like biofuels. Now, biofuels have had huge money invested into them to say these are alternative to oil, but the problem is that so far we have been unable to scale those up to production that you need in order to make them economically a a good proposition. And is it the case, this is a question, not a statement from me, is it the case that you can scale up this sort of uh, production to in, in a way that is economically and energy efficient because a little bit of research I did on this a couple of years ago indicated that at the time that you spend so much energy growing the stuff in a lab because there's all sorts of challenges you've got to uh, meet in order to do it does it actually make uh, is it a is it actually viable so you've got to pump the nutrients in and you've got to get the nutrients from somewhere then you've got all the waste materials you've got to you've got to provide the temperature and the oxygen supply and so on and so on to
1: this growing culture and is it actually going to work well these are very good questions and at the moment clearly it's very unviable Two hundred and fifty thousand dollars is not something i'd want to spend on a subpar burger. But uh, considering the world's appetite for meat is forecast to rise by 70% by 2050, and nearly a third of the world's ice-free land is already used to raise livestock or grow fodder for these animals, uh, without a radical technological shift, then the new demand will be hard to satisfy. So if we can move toward being able to synthesize some of our proteins... it it can only be a good thing.
0: Well, it certainly, it certainly feels good to not have to knock some poor animal on the head so that we can have a nice steak for dinner. That would make a lot of people happy. So we might break to a track now, but when we come back, we're going to be talking about that infinite resource, which is our oceans, and how it's going to continue to feed us, and how we can continue to pump pesticides and sewage and industrial waste into it, and it all just gets sucked away by the big vacuum cleaner, and we can do that ad infinitum. In fact... Maybe I've got a feeling that our guest, Richard, is going to challenge that notion here on Fuzzy Logic when we come back after this track. What have we got, Richard? What what track have we got to play today?
2: This is the Doni track of Philip Glass. It's uh, a track which for me has the mystery and the complexity of seawater and how little we know about it how wondrous it is and what a fantastic medium and we'll ah, listen to this water.
0: and then talk more about it afterwards terrific stuff okay here we are on fuzzy logic and today we're going to be talking about oceans fish and what did you have for dinner what might you have for breakfast i hope it tastes good and a bit of Philip glass here on 2 double x the fuzzy logic science show and today we're talking oceans and we have in fact a guest whose voice you heard just before that track came on and it is the a professorial fellow from the University of Wollongong in marine research and his name is Richard Kensington and he's also from the Australian National Center for Oceanographic uh, Ocean Resource Security. Now, good morning and welcome to Fuzzy Logic. Good morning Ron it's great to be here. Now <clears throat> before the track I made a fairly bold assertion about our infinite oceans, about how we can just keep pulling things out of them and keep putting our waste into them for as long as we like. Was I perhaps slightly off the bark with that comment?
2: Well, probably rather a lot off the mark. The mystery about the ocean is that people look at the surface and they think they understand the sea. If you think about seawater, it's 800 times as dense as air. Its properties are very much like human blood. It's a great life support system. And it's wet. It's full of cells from the viruses you were talking about before through to blue whales. And the action is in the third dimension of the water column. We are land animals. We walk around inside our skins, which are space suits to enable us to live in a dry, hostile environment. If you're a cell in the ocean, you will experience, perhaps on an extreme day, a difference of one degree Celsius, and that's very rare. If you live in Canberra, you can experience 24 degrees temperature difference in a really bad time, but 10 degrees is very frequent every day. Now, without a skin, without a supply, a support system, uh, cells die. So the sea is a wonderful support medium and nursery.
0: That's that's a beautiful metaphor that we are walking around in space suits. So I haven't I haven't heard that before. So you're saying that we essentially in terrestrial animals, we are maintaining a little marine environment inside our skins.
2: Exactly so. Yeah. Every land animal or plant has to have a major survival mechanism. We have very complicated reproductive systems in order to ensure that our young can go from the egg and sperm stage to the independent stage many of the marine creatures and quite a lot of freshwater creatures you just the eggs and the sperm are discharged into a waiting environment where they can be where they can feed they can grow up and reach maturity it's not all good though it's also uh, an area where there are bacteria viruses crustaceans predators uh, but it's a totally different concept, which is so—it's—it's uh, it's so alien to the way in which we live, where we live in a two-dimensional world.
0: It, it reminds me of some researchers in South America who who realised that all the research they were doing was based from the floor of the forest. And they would walk around the thick Amazonian jungle, and, and and they would see everything from ground level. And so they built these walkways or like this tippery platform, so they could get up to the canopy of the tree, up the canopy of the forest, and see it from a different angle. So you, you're saying that our own world, our own worldview, is so skewed by the fact that we are humans or terrestrial animals. What, what are some of the other ways in which? this this affects us, our, our view.
2: Well, I mean, your Amazon example is good. What was happening, in fact, was that the people building towers in rainforests are just looking at the stuff which has reached up from the surface of the earth. It's, not, it's third dimensional in that it's getting moisture from there. And yes, we have birds and bees and pollen and so forth going through the air and providing transport and uh, uh, fertilisation links. It's trivial compared to what goes on in the sea. This, the, the primary productivity on land is anchored to the ground, the two-dimensional surface. It may grow up 200 metres on a huge tree, but that's what we're dealing with. The life is attached to it. I saw a pigeon. Well, I didn't see the pigeon lay the egg, but I saw the egg fall on the ground and break in front of me. Um, fish lay their eggs in the water column regularly. Um, people tell me, oh, but we've got birds and bats. We have, but they all depend on stuff which has got its starting life from the land surface. The, the meter also the surface of the land and the metre or two below it is where is where the primary productivity lives we We eat grazing animals. we can understand where they come from and how how they grow because we can look at paddocks we can see activities uh, we can see them see them growing we can see droughts we can see uh, we can see their well being But the sea, because it 's three dimensional mysterious, and until very recently we couldn 't really go into it very much fish happen or they don't happen. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a good season or it's a bad season. I'm very clever because I caught a fish. It may just be a happy accident. The fish was stupid enough to eat my, eat my hook that day, but I'll go back and brag about it. Um, we, we invent stories to try to relate marine things to terrestrial concepts when it's all up there in the third dimension.
0: So your, your, your professional career has been built, I think, around the ocean as an ecology, is that, is that right?
2: Uh, yeah. I started off, uh, my first work after being an undergraduate was working on marine plankton, so I had a bias because I was working with a three, three-dimensional community. I didn't realise it at the time, but it's really influenced a lot of things afterwards. You understand from work like that how one point is connected to another. A mussel can spawn at a location and its larvae can be carried and can settle hundreds of kilometres, certainly tens of kilometres away from where it is. And there may be nothing in between where it's suitable for a mussel to settle. So you can have two widely separated areas which are intimately connected and that's
0: uh, that's a very difficult concept quite often so it, it is quite a challenging notion for us as land uh, <laughs> limited land, dwelling animals we're talking about a complex system. in fact, maybe can you explain what what a complex system actually is is it and and what sort of mistakes do we make as as people, as humans trying to leave off a resource in the ocean
2: well. We've got some very deep cultural associations. I, I grew up in England where the, the, one of the sayings was there's plenty more fish in the sea. And the other one, as you had a pea in the sea during your summer holiday, was, well, another drop doesn't matter. So your comment about pollution earlier on, we've seen, and engineers still are, are, are taught in first year in many places to recite the solution to pollution is dilution. Um, in other words, you put it in the river, it comes down the river and goes into the sea. And to a large extent, that's true. I mean, the the marine systems are um, potentially very forgiving. But when they're overloaded, you can get some nasty snapbacks.
0: How would you describe, if if the patient were to come into your waiting room and you were the doctor and the, the patient is the world's oceans and you were to do an assessment of the health of the patient, uh, that's a big question, but what would you say? And maybe there isn't one answer for for all the world's oceans. But
2: well, there's some some recent research which has um, done some metadata stuff on the condition of the oceans, and uh, ranging through the status of fish stocks, the status of inshore habitats, and the nasties in the remote water pesticide levels in uh, in penguins in the Antarctic uh, a very complex man-made molecules have found their way some way through the water quality connection into uh, into birds and those we don 't know what the effects are, but some of those chemicals in in terrestrial birds have had effects on their reproductive capacities, um, so that 's at one level to answer your question. Uh, the patient is showing sim- a number of symptoms of of decline, and we need to do things to look at how we can avoid unnecessarily um, adding to the problems it faces and that 's a problem which we have to address. In a really hard way, because the problems start at the mouths of the rivers and within three to five miles, or uh, five to ten kilometres from the coast, those are the areas we impact most immediately and most directly, and they're the hardest ones to manage because of a whole range of legal and social problems.
0: So are there, uh, there's a couple of dimensions to the consequences of this, are there not? So one is that we eat fish for for breakfast or for dinner and it's a source of nu- nutrition for we humans but also is it something that's inherently something worth saving like we save areas of, of land like uh, rainforest and heritage desert areas and so on is uh, what, what's the value of all of this of the oceans to us
2: Well, um, the value of the oceans to humanity is huge. A large proportion, particularly of the poorer people in the world, depend absolutely on food that they get from the sea or on the coast. Um, So that's a fairly direct and obvious issue. If you're asking the question about do we need to protect areas in the sea, the answer is yes, in part because we have so little knowledge as to how those systems work, in part because we know from coral reefs and uh, mangrove and seagrass areas how important these areas are as nurseries to the whole range of species, including the ones we use. And... uh, as refuges and reference points for research so that we can begin to understand more directly what the impacts of the things that people do to the sea by putting stuff in through pollution or taking stuff out through fishing and mining and trying to work out how all of these things fit together in inordinately
0: complex um, food chains and ecosystems. So I think you're saying that saving the world's oceans is not an optional extra. It's not for something for lentil-eating greenies to do just because it feels good. It's actually really a critical resource for humanity. Would you agree with that?
2: Well, uh, there's some slight dispute over it, but the idea that that life came out of the oceans, Uh, the marine environment of the oceans, is fairly widespread. The other thing, I started off by saying seawater is 800 times as dense as air. It has 800 times, or perhaps even factorial times, of picking up and transferring nasties and being affected by nasties. We're worried, rightly, about the atmosphere. I'm concerned we're not putting enough attention into the ocean sphere.
0: Uh, Okay. Here on Fuzzy Logic, our guest today is professor professorial professorial fellow from the University of Wollongong Richard Kensington and he's also from the Australian National Centre for Oceanographic Resource Security here on Fuzzy Logic and when we come back we might talk a bit about fish farming and other ways of alternative ways of getting food now you've chosen a track richard what track is this uh this is a
2: track from the maldives in the middle of the indian ocean a a version of a fishing song it captures people out in a in a paddling and sailing boat going fishing for skipjack tuna which is the staple food of those islands
1: welcome back to fuzzy logic that was a maldivian Fishing song. Uh, our guest today is Richard Kensington. And Richard, can you tell me what, why you chose that song? Oh, it's um, symbolically
2: important for me because it's one of the first uh, things I did. Taking the learning we'd had from Australia in barrier reef management to another coral reef country and going to a country where people are totally dependent on marine resources in a way which we, in a developed country, are not.
1: What sort of barriers does a differing socioeconomic situation uh, provide? Because I I imagine managing reefs in Australia would be quite different to managing reefs in the Maldives or the Philippines or one of these sustainable...
2: Well, I think the simplest way is just an an anecdote of some research that I'm aware of in the Philippines, where uh, people less than a decade ago would need to go and spend six hours in a day... just to catch enough fish to feed their family and that number has now gone up over 12 perhaps to 14 hours that is dependency of people who have no other uh, means of support uh, in a country which if it's going to be providing alternative food for it uh, for those people has got the challenge of of, uh, of meeting the basic needs. and We have to remember we, we are very concerned and rightly so about coral reefs but most of the coral reefs of the world occur on the coasts of developing countries where there is a large amount of coastal poverty and dependency. I mean, this is widespread for other marine environments around a lot of cases the people who live on the coast are poor. But a lot of the thinking comes from wealthy countries where we see the sea uh, in many ways as an aesthetic and recreational amenity rather than a dependent one.
0: Yes, the the contrast really strikes me there, you you know I I didn't spend any time at all getting the fish that I ate for dinner last night, I just went down (laughs) to the supermarket and when I do go fishing I go out in an expensive boat and we've got sonar gear and expensive fishing and if we don't catch anything, well we have a beer and we go home again, it doesn't really matter so this this cultural aspect, do you think the case is that people in the Maldives because they're so closely connected to their source of food, unlike we in the Western countries, that they're much more attuned to the health of the environment that they're working in? It's difficult
2: to say. I mean, the Maldives, since I was there in the early 80s, has now developed an enormous uh, uh, tourism industry based around the environmental um Assets of coral reefs and uh, tropical sands, and the young people in the Maldives now, given a choice, most of them would rather work in the tourism industry than going out on the boats, um, and that that's a transition again, which you see in quite a lot of areas. And um, uh, yes, particularly the old people and the traditional people have a a really good understanding quite a lot of the younger people don't have that because there's a, there's a, a sort of social gear
0: change between generations. Yeah, but so they, they might take people out in tourist boats and so on, but when they come home at night they've still got to eat something, and even the tourists still have to eat something. Now, I've heard another marine scientist say that we are deploying all the technologies of modern warfare against our fish resources. Would you agree with that?
2: I'd I'd agree with that, absolutely. Um, You were talking about recreational fishing.
0: Um,
2: For me, it's really interesting. There's a a very simple piece of mathematics. If there's twice as many people trying to catch fish from the same stock, everyone's going to come back with half that number of fish. But that's a very difficult one for fishermen anyway. When you go to to, uh, the whole range of fishing with new technologies where we've got better ways of finding the last hiding place of the fish, uh, we come up against our challenge that there's always plenty more fish in the sea and people think that the fish are very clever so they've got to deploy high technology to find them. Um, whereas in the old days, when you used to need to go on a compass bearing, taking account of, uh, of cross currents and a whole range of factors and poor visibility, finding a fishing spot was difficult uh, and uh, knowing whether there were fish there was difficult. But now with the things, you can buy a GPS thing for a slab in the pub. People can go out there. There's virtually no skill needed for a lot of near shore fishing.
0: There's nowhere to hide for the poor fish. Yes, I, I recall that because I've been up to the Dampier archipelago and seeing the, even the decline in there over the years, I would, would go, and you could just punch in the, the GPS coordinates. Here's mm. a good spot. I know there's a bombora there, mm. and there will be the fish. But So overtaking overuse of the resource is one challenge. But there's also the the pollution, the things that we're pumping into the ocean. So now you're saying that 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 is also a big challenge. Oh, that, that's um, if you put
2: too much fertilizer into the sea, too many nutrients, you can get an imbalance of phytoplankton. We have a phenomenon called red tides, which, when it's extreme, can make water poisonous and cause fish kills in in nearshore sheltered waters. But at lower levels, you can change whole food chains by altering the balance in the predator-prey relationships through there in ways that we're dimly beginning to understand. Um, one of the best things for me that has happened in the last couple of decades has been the investment by both the Commonwealth and the Queensland governments working with farmers, landowners and land resource managers to reduce the pollution coming from agriculture from the uh, the catchments into the Barrier Reef Lagoon. Now. The last report card said that in some places the amounts were going down. Certainly they had plateaued from a case when they were expanding uh, very frequently. It's still too high. The near shore reefs are affected by a variety of forms of, of pollution. The offshore reefs are not too bad. But there is one of the world's best researched areas of uh, near shore marine and a huge investment in managing water quality, to keep it in something uh, which uh, does not resemble its pristine condition, but is still in very good condition for most of its areas, particularly offshore. Um, We can't see water pollution in the way we can see land and air pollution. And that, again, is a problem. This alien environment, which covers 70% of the world's surface,
0: Y- yes, I, w- I was look- uh, in around Sydney Harbour a couple of days ago and looking at the water, it seemed clear and blue, and I was wondering how good the water quality actually is. But it, it's a fairly abstract concept. So if you're a sugar farmer up in Innisfail or something like that, and you've got your fertiliser runoff going, it, it's, it's, it's a, there's a few chains of cause and effect in it. It's, it's, a, it's an abstract concept. H- how do you find... Talking to these sort of people, that they connect with the the impacts of what they're doing.
2: Oh well, many of the guys who who grow sugar up in North Queensland also go fishing. So you know, you go hey, if the fishing's not so good, um, maybe it's because there aren't so many fish. Not just because you guys are good at catching them, but because the uh, the food chain's been affected and there's less successful recruitment. And there's science you can you can uh, put out there to. Um, um, reinforce that argument. There's another another line, which is the effects that have been had is the deployment of advanced te- technologies and using computer-based systems so that the application of fertilisers and pesticides is just in time and at the right location. The advantages are that less is used. The advantage for the farmers, the immediate advantage, is it costs less. They, they, they don't have such high input costs of fertilisers. There may be a capital cost of getting the equipment, enabling them to have the equipment to, to do this or the support systems to help them know know these things at particular cases. But when you look into these things, it's, it's not... Um, it's not all a one way problem there are solutions because generally speaking the less materials you're using the less
0: it costs. Right so might you do something like on a farm that have the means for a farmer to measure the amount of fertilizer runoff in the waterways, that they're coming off their property, they can see, they can measure it themselves, is that the sort of thing perhaps?
2: Uh, well, that, that, that's when you, you got to the wrong end of the thing, it's having it's having, uh, it's having a soil moisture, plant condition things on a computer-based system which says we need this amount of fertilizer to achieve this output. Ah, oh, so it's based it's on the requirement. So, so that the, the fertilizer that's used, that is applied is actually used. Yeah. Uh, now, now traditionally with farming, and I grew up on a farm. You, you know, the packet would say uh, uh, put in ten grams per liter. You You'd probably go, "Well, I'll put twelve in." It's you know just to make sure. And, and getting through through, I mean, a lot of things we do that in people putting sugar in tea, for example. Mm-hmm. But uh, getting through that to having something which is really finely um, uh, finely measured and calculated to get the result you want, without having the results that you don't want.
1: Ah. Well, then, of course, um, this sounds like great policy initiatives, but I guess then we have questions of enforcement. How do we ensure that the farmer would follow this precise recipe?
2: Well, if the formula has got the right incentives for the farmer, then um, the guy's not going to go... uh, I'm using my simple example. Mm. The guy's are not, not going to be going pumping a lot, lot more fertiliser and a lot more insecticide on if he's uh, if not getting the results because the economics, um, the economics is fine. I mean, in the old days, uh, we used to have problems of loss of soil fertility because people would grow crop after crop. The, the natural fertility of the soil would go down, partly because they would plough right to the edge of the paddock so there was a high runoff of sediment, which was bad for the reef, bad for the fish. And bad for the farmer, but the uh, uh, the simple measure of of introducing um, the concept that you don 't plow right to the edge of the creek, you have a fifty or a hundred meter nature zone around the edge of the creek, retained soil on the paddock. Yes, you produced slightly less sugar in a year, but um, uh, than you would have if, if you planted everywhere. But over the years, you uh, you do better because your soil retains its fertility, and you don't need so much fertilizer, and you've got a nature strip behind, so your creek's nice.
0: So, so it's, it's a riparian zone, it's a, it's a little buffer zone to capture those things. Mm. Our, our guest today here on Fuzzy Logic is professorial fellow from the <laughs> University of Wollongong, uh, Richard K- Kensington, and he's also from the Australian National Centre for Ocean Resource Security. And here we are on Fuzzy Logic, and we're going to play a little track here. This one is from... Oh is his name Kat Stevens and it's the Longer Boats. When we come back we're gonna talk about fish farming and is it really a good solution to our problem of ocean resources here on Fuzzy Logic 2X. Longer boats are coming to win us.
1: they come into win-
0: And some classic Cat Stevens there, the longer boats are coming to win us, which seems appropriate because today we're talking about our oceans and the things that we eat that come out of the oceans and how much that matters to us and how we would like to continue doing so for as long as we can because we all like to eat, don't we? and here on Fuzzy Logic and our guest today is a professorial fellow from the University of Wollongong Richard Kensington and from the Australian National Centre for Ocean Resource Security. Now just before the break Richard we were talking about uh, uh, farmers and so on and another way of getting fish is to farm fish. Now is that, is that a good solution to our food security problem from the oceans?
2: Well, the answer, as so often with these things, is in part yes and in part no. Um, If we can grow things, particularly things nearer the bottom of the food chain, like oysters and so forth, then we can get a lot of digestible protein from things low down in the food chain uh, without, um, uh, without major complications. The problem when we start culturing fish further up the food chain is that we are feeding them with fish we 've caught somewhere else, so um, where the statistics may tell you that so much has been, so much fish has been caught and so much fish has been produced in fact you 're double counting at times because if you if you take a ton of anchovies to produce a ton of salmon, which would be extraordinarily efficient um, then uh, you've, you've in your fishery statistics you can have you can have uh, the appearance of having two tons but you've actually only produced one tonne with an additional expense Uh, and the the effects of taking the fish in the middle of the food chain need to be uh, need to be thought about in terms of what's happening to the rest of the wild network because if you're taking small prey fish that um, other prey fish would be taking other predators would be taking in the environment that they exist in in order to bring them back in frozen chunks to feed to, to feed to fish in a farm, then you 're not, not any further ahead except you 've produced a nicer fish perhaps <laughs> uh, so uh, the real the golden golden nugget in fish farming is going to be able to, is going to, to have the ability to produce a synthetic food which has the critical things of carotenoids which come from shrimps and omega threes that we all hear about for being so healthy for us. If we can find a way of synthesizing a food material that we can feed to farmed fish. Along with uh, with primary produce materials, so that they can grow and have good flavor, then we 've really made a significant difference to food supply we 're not there yet. Uh, the fish farmers have got the conversion rate in terms of the amount of wild fish they have to put into a diet as opposed to the the other materials that 's coming down. Um, from one stage being several times per kilogram to being not uh, not very much more than a kilogram per kilogram. It, so it, there are improvements, but again, we, we need to learn a lot more about how we can make better foods.
0: Uh, uh, so they, uh, they, they sound like incremental gains. They sound a little bit like the farmers you were telling us about earlier. Uh, uh, it's just better management of how much food they put into the into their department? Or is no, it
2: there's some very like fundamental science involved in that. Uh, in particularly the things that make fish taste fishy, taste good. The carotenoids, the, the, you know, the pink colour you get out of prawns is a carotenoid. That's the stuff that helps to make the salmon or the sea trout pink. It's also got a range of biochemical things, as I understand it, which uh, are important in making the flavour. We've also got the fact that omega-3s are supposed to, be you know, are, are dietarily important things and you know, getting that into fish is a really major human dietary health thing. So it's a
1: supplement uh, issue. Uh,
0: are there any candidates that you see as being a, an artificial food source for, for the fish farms?
1: Perhaps synthesized steak.
2: Well, well that that might be a way to go. I I don't know there's a heap of research going on and I'm not on top of on top of the research. It's a, it's it's a major issue that uh, is getting quite a lot of attention because uh, it's such an important industry. I mean it's a very important industry for Tasmania and uh, the cooler water areas around the world but the the issue of breaking breaking away from the problem of being dependent on wild caught food which means we're right back to the whole problem of sustainable catches of of wild caught fish is a critical one for breaking away it's it we're the equivalent area for hunters and gatherers working out how to how to raise cattle Predictably, as opposed to chasing and hoping to find, a, hoping to find an antelope.
1: That's a, that's a good analogy. It's uh, interesting when you consider the food chain in the ocean, we eat the predators, whereas we don't tend to eat many land predators. So it's um, quite interesting that the food for farmed fish is other fish, whereas the food for farmed cattle is grass, grain. And, and you can see grass growing.
0: Hmm. And you can see now you've got to put nutrients into a fish farm, but the fish don't just eat it; they excrete it, and so you you then have a waste problem, do you not, from from a localized waste problem?
2: Well, you can have, but theoretically you could have a very nice cascade which takes nutrients of nitrates and phosphates out of waste from a city stream, puts that through algae to grow algae or or phytoplankton which is then eaten by shrimps or something else which then goes into a a fish farm again there's research has been being done in various ways on this over over decades but but getting a cascade where you're you are making a virtue of all of those nutrients that you put into the sea you're actually using them instead of them going into the sea they come back as something which you are using uh that's that's another. I mean, that's the other part of the golden quest of finding the way of feeding these critters.
0: I, I see a really fundamental shift in thinking that you. I think you're alluding to here. Uh, one is, well, you know, at the top of the show, I referred to the oceans being a, an infinite resource. We just dump stuff into them and just take stuff out infinitely. But what I think you're referring to is the oceans as a system. And so if we can harness the outputs of, say, a fish farm and then use them to generate inputs to the fish farm, then we're actually starting to think about it as a connected system, are we?
2: Uh, absolutely. I mean, we're, we're uh, if you like, <coughs> we're doing it in a number of ways already. Some of the uh, some of the, uh, the the sewage processing things where nutrients come from that which are then used in agriculture. Um, the, uh, you know, people go, ooh, yuck, but... The, the The waste products that we and the animals and everything everything else use are nutrients and fertilizers for plants when they get uh, uh, when they get too great they become toxic. so the issue really is becoming smarter about accepting the costs of managing our wastes as a means of offsetting the damage to the environment. You can in some ways say we subsidise life on land by
0: taking it uh, through uh, impacts on the environment. Yeah, so we're spending an asset. A- and um, so it's seeing what was a waste is actually a resource. Absolutely, yeah, yeah, it's recycling. Now... Uh, just, just quickly, do you have an opinion on the... It's been very controversial around Canberra because we've got these ocean reserves, marine parks, and, and fishermen have been excluded from areas around the coast, all up and down the coast of New South Wales. Do we need those? Are they How important are they in the scheme of things? They are very
2: important in the scheme of things. They are one essential tool in marine management. And one of the problems is we're bogged down in a debate as to whether we should have marine protected areas or not, rather than are we managing marine environments properly. Fisheries management is not scientifically based unless it has reference points against which you can understand what's going on in the marine environment in areas which have not been fished. I mean, it's simple. It's not science. It's witchcraft and sorcery doing it that way. That's one of the elements. The second element is that many of the marine protected areas, the no-take reserves, are really important because they're spawning sites or nursery areas for fish, which later get out and can be fished. Uh, There's a series of very good arguments. Exactly where... Exactly how big, how they should be managed uh, is a matter of intense debate and a fair amount of research at the moment. But for me, we need to have an overall management of 100% of our marine regime and not focus just on the 5 or 10 or whatever percent which is going to be protected. Because whilst we're not managing the other 90%, other than looking at one or two resources separately, we're probably missing the mm, major
0: point. It sounds a bit too much like a, a magic pill. Uh, well, thank you very much, Richard, for your time today here on Fuzzy Logic. And I, I can't think of very many topics that are more important because well, the oceans are such an important part of our civilisation and, and, and our food systems.